0: you take with me in your copy of God's Word and turn to the Gospel of Mark. This morning as we consider the truths that we have just sung of, the very confidence that we stand upon, we find those truths and we find that confidence ultimately in the Word of our God. So let's consider this morning Mark chapter 6, looking at the first 29 verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah, and others said, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had, been, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist The girl gave it to her mother, and when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Our God and our Father, we are sobered and even quieted upon considering the reality of such a thing taking place, all the while we know that it happens quite often, but Father, to see it. In your scripture written before us and to know that it's not merely just the document of some historical fact but this is contained here by the very work of your spirit as it is the word of God and father that you have given us your word and that it is profitable and that your word will accomplish your good purposes and that your word is the the necessary foundation that we must stand upon and seek to frame our lives upon and so lord Given that this is your word, and even the warnings that are here, would you help us to receive them as they are? Father, we long to be those who believe, who put our trust and our faith in you. We long to be those who have a a reputation like Jairus or like this woman who had great faith in you. And yet, Lord, we also recognize and can sympathize with those who say, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. So, Father, this morning we ask that you would help us to receive your word as it is the very word of God. Give us hearts of meekness that we may receive the implanted word, that it may do that which you want to cause it to to come to pass in our lives. Help us, Father. Grant faith where it does not exist. We believe that your sovereign grace is powerful, working mightily to save. And so, Lord, even in our unbelief, overcome us by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you read through this narrative consecutively, you'll know that in the events leading up to chapter 6 here, Jesus has been performing a variety, a series of miracles, demonstrating really his authority. His authority over both the natural and supernatural powers. His authority has been in on full display back in chapters 4 and chapters 5, displaying this authority as he calms the storm. He casts out a legion of demons from this poor man. He heals a woman with a chronic disease. He even raises a dead girl back to life. And these sovereign displays of his authority only add to this swelling popularity that seems to be following Jesus wherever he arrives, that the crowds also press in and this popularity continues to to follow him. But Mark has also been weaving together another emphasis within this gospel, showing that alongside this rising popularity of Jesus is this rising hostility against Jesus. Not everyone, Mark wants us to know, is enamored with Christ or his teaching. And in the portion of scripture that was just read this morning, that we're considering this morning, Jesus returns to his hometown, which is Nazareth, and he faces rejection, ironically, by those who knew him most. Those who were actually most familiar with him in the 30 plus years of his life. And you would hear that, that Jesus is returning home, and you might expect that they would be the most receptive to his message, but actually what we find is they were actually some of the most opposed. There is a sort of familiarity with the Bible, with what we're doing right now, with the ins and outs, the life of a particular church, There can even be a sort of familiarity with the words of Christ, perhaps even the portion of scripture we just read this morning. But there is a sort of familiarity that is actually a sinful comfort, a sort of comfort that is not good because it lulls you into a false sense of security and can even dull your sense of urgency upon hearing the word of God. That is why we would say there is a familiarity that actually damns. And that's a sobering thought. Jairus and the woman, there in chapter 5, they stand out most certainly as examples of a faith that believes. But there are also within Scripture these examples of unbelief. We're to read both, we're to read both with a sense of urgency. And as we read this, we are meant to ask, what is underneath this unwillingness to believe? And the text before us, it really calls out as a sober warning. It's a warning to us, lest any of us here this morning be content with hearing Jesus, yet doing nothing. We are given several examples of those who did not believe. Those who actually refused to To believe. And just what are those warnings for us? Well, let's consider them along these lines. There is the offense of unmet expectations. That would be one. There is the refusal of unwilling listeners. And then lastly in Herod, we see the trap of ungodly affections. Not exhaustive but certainly enlightening as to what lies underneath this issue of unbelief. Unmet expectations, unwilling listeners, and ungodly affections. Let's consider first this warning that's wrapped up in the offense of unmet expectations, and we see that in the first six verses. Jesus returns home. Jesus comes back to his hometown, and by this point in his ministry, he had maintained and obtained this reputation in the region of Galilee as an authoritative teacher. If you heard Jesus was coming, you meant you knew that meant people are, are going to be healed. You knew that meant this man teaches with authority. And so his return would create quite a stir. And historically, and according to tradition, it would only be custom that if a man, a teacher, who was approved by the leaders of the synagogue, visited a certain region, he would often be asked to speak in the synagogue. And no doubt, Jesus, again, given that opportunity. But Jesus' status as what we might refer to as the hometown boy would have been a particularly strong uh, stirring this, this one Saturday, this one Sabbath. So we know from gospel accounts that Jesus' hometown was Nazareth, a small town in the region of Galilee. We know this is where he grew up. And according to Luke's account in his gospel, he was submissive to his parents. He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God. In other words, what the scriptures say is that Jesus lived a normal life in a typical family and grew up alongside friends and family in this region for some 30 years. And Mark tells us, in part, it was something to do with this normalcy that caused a bit of conundrum for this hometown crowd. Most specifically in verse 2, when they all gathered at the synagogue to hear Jesus open the scriptures, Mark says they were astonished. They were astounded. They were amazed at what they heard. But notice the emphasis. Mark is careful to note that this was not the sort of amazement that he records at the Capernaum synagogue in chapter 1, verse 21, where they were amazed at his teaching. Nor is this the kind of wonder that is noted in chapter 2, verse 12, as the crowd stood in awe of the healing of the paralytic. No, the astonishment of this hometown crowd was actually an offense the sort of reaction where your jaw drops and you are astounded at what you're seeing and what you're hearing, but the sort of astonishment that is there because of absolute unbelief. I don't believe what I'm seeing right now. I'm in awe of what I'm actually hearing right now. Where we would say, are you kidding me? The sort of reaction has everything to do with that of familiarity. Did you notice the line of questions they ask? Where, what, and how? Good questions. Where did this man get these things? I mean, where did he pick up this learning? What sort of wisdom and teaching has been given to him? How does he do such mighty works? They are astounded, astonished. I mean, after all, we know his family. This, this is Mary's kid. We know his brothers. We know, you know James and Joseph. You know Judas and Simon. You know his sisters. You know the whole lot. We have watched him grow up. We know all about this Jesus of our Nazareth. So really what Mark is getting at is they were not doubting his power that he possessed or the ability of his teaching, but the fact that those things resided in their Jesus, They were astonished. And ultimately, Mark tells us they were offended. The word is scandalized. They thought it to be a scandal that this Jesus that they were so familiar with could speak and heal and teach like this. So within the text this morning, we have a sobering warning Against a type of familiarity with Jesus that results in a hardened cynicism of just unbelief. Who does he think he is? They had certain expectations of what Jesus ought to be and what he certainly could not be, and he was not fitting into those expectations that morning. And so, what we see is that these unmet expectations. Actually lead to the sort of offense that provoked them to say, "I don't believe a word he says. I don't believe he is who he thinks he is." And Jesus' response to this particular unbelief is sobering. It says in verse five that he could do no mighty work there. Now, first glance, that sounds somewhat concerning. As if Jesus' ability is somehow governed or limited by their unbelief. But, friends, if we read Scripture alongside Scripture and compare the illumination of Scripture upon this particular text, we're helped in some way. And we're helped in seeing that this could not of verse 5 was really set off against their unbelieving hearts. The could not, it's not so much ability but could not in the sense of willingness. Here's what I mean. What are the purpose of signs and wonders in scripture? Going back to Moses, going back to Exodus, what we see is that signs and wonders always accompany new revelation. When God breaks in and he begins to speak and progressive revelation unfolds, signs and wonders are there to accompany the word that has just been proclaimed. Signs and wonders and mighty works are done to testify to the revelation of his teaching. Signs and wonders existed alongside new revelation, supporting the testimony and the validity of his teaching. But they have already refused and taken offense at his teaching. Therefore, no mighty works could be done. In the sense of, you've already cast off the entire purpose for which I am here. I am the word of God. Consider the privilege that Nazareth had to have by having Jesus in their very midst, and yet they remained unbelieving. Church, this stands as a sober warning for us, reminding us that proximity to Jesus, even exposure to the Bible, it does not guarantee belief. Children, You are exposed each week. Some of you have even grown up hearing the word of God preached from this pulpit. That does not guarantee belief. Proximity to your parents' faith, having multiple Bibles on your nightstand, does not guarantee belief. Listen to scripture and take heed. Apart from faith, Exposure to the scriptures, exposure even to the message of the gospel, merely inoculates us to its message. Because we become so familiar with it that we nod our head and say, yes, I know. Those who knew Jesus best were scandalized and offended because he did not meet their perception of who they thought he ought to be. So can I ask us? Think about your life. What is shaping your expectations of who Christ is? Where are you you looking or finding help to think well about who God is? About what he is like? Do you have some idea in your mind of how God should be treating you? And where did you get that idea? Do you have some idea in your mind as to how God should be providing for you? Where did you get that idea? Do you have some idea in your conscience or your perception of things as how God ought to be orchestrating life's events? Where did you come up with that idea? Friends, if it is not shaped by scripture, we are setting ourselves up to be offended because of particularly unmet expectations, expectations that have nothing to do with the true and the risen Christ as revealed in his word. We must be careful. Christ and his word could be plainly before us, just as in Nazareth, but we shrug our shoulders, we turn our backs, and we simply say, that's really not the Jesus I'm looking for. Next. And he was amazed at their unbelief. There is a warning of unmet expectations, but there's also a warning in verses 7 through 13 of this refusal of unwilling listeners. There's a refusal of unwilling listeners. What we have in verses 7 through 13 is that Jesus sends out the 12 in his authority. They're sent out representing one greater than themselves, They go to these villages and they begin to speak and the authority upon which they speak and as Mark tells us, they were preaching repentance, calling for people to turn from sin and to turn towards God. The authority in which they commanded repentance was not their own, but the fact that they were sent in the authority of Christ. They're sent out representing one greater than themselves. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. In the name of Jesus, be healed. In the name of Christ, repent and believe. That was the message that they were preaching. So what can we say from that? Well, what we can say was not only the power in which they accomplished these things, but to reject the ministry of the 12. To hear that message and close your door was not just to reject a few itinerant fishermen with some glossy handouts and a message of hope. To do so was to reject Jesus and the authority that the Father had given to him. Hence, verse 11. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Such a gesture is clearly one of disassociation, leaving that place to suffer the consequences of rejection. Paul and Barnabas did this on missionary journey and their first missionary journey to Antioch in Acts 13 where they were rejected and we're told they shook the dust off their feet. Again, as a testimony against them, refusing the message that was proclaimed in the authority of the risen Christ. And so the paired up disciples here in Mark 6 they go with the message of the kingdom into the surrounding villages. They go in the authority of the king and the Messiah, the son of God. There is an urgency to their message. There is even a compulsion that you must believe. In the ministry of the word and the message of the scriptures, it most certainly carries with it a sense of responsibility, a sense of urgency every time we hear it. Will you Welcome this message or not? Will you turn towards this message or turn away? And so the instruction that Jesus gives to his disciples before he sends them out is an important insight for us into the very nature of unbelief. Primarily, that unbelief is unwillingness. Do you see that? Notice verse 11. That they will not listen to you. That they are unwilling to listen to you. Unbelief is an unwillingness. Here's what I'm trying to emphasize. Unbelief is not just like a lack of faith. When you look down at your gas tank and see, I'm a quarter tank low. Unbelief is not just a diminished faith. Unbelief is actually an opposition to the authority of God and his word. There is moral significance attached to unbelief. We find this same line of thinking in Augustine when he taught that unbelief is the sin wherein all sins are included. Unbelief is the sin in which all sins are included. Martin Luther said, unbelief is the root, the sap, the chief power of all sin. He also wrote and taught that unbelief is the supreme act of hatred against God, and it's really the basis for all of our idolatry. What greater rebellion against God, what greater wickedness, what greater contempt of God is there than not believing his promise? We'll have to quote Calvin if we've quoted the other two. Unbelief was the root of defection. Just as faith alone unites to God, hence flowed ambition and pride. Looking back at the garden, he would say, Adam would never have dared oppose God's authority unless he had disbelieved God's word. Unbelief, the sin wherein all sin is included. Now, pause for a second. And we're talking about these categories of unbelief and belief. Do not think only in the categories of salvation, meaning believer, unbeliever. Christian, non-Christian. Certainly those categories exist. But if unbelief is the sin wherein all sins are included, then we are in part all unbelievers in some way. If all sin at its root is unbelief, then Christian, that means you are in part an unbeliever every time you sin. We need to broaden our categories out lest we begin to think this is for all the unsaved. This is a sermon for the non-Christian. No, this is for those who are polluted by even, even the remaining residue of unbelief. Every sin is an act of unbelief. And the root of temptation, every temptation that we face, and the offense of every sin that we commit is at its core the grotesque fruit of our unbelief. And by God's grace, saving faith may have conquered and overcome your ultimate unbelief in who Christ is. But do not think that the remaining stains of unbelief are not affecting your heart, your mind, and your will this morning. Sin darkens the eye of faith. It prevents you from seeing reality as it is. Remaining sin, the residue of our corruption, will still plague us from time to time. It is our unbelief that provokes us to doubt the faithfulness of God, to sustain and to provide in every season. That's unbelief. It is our unbelief that prompts us to doubt the goodness of God in our pain, in our affliction, in our waiting. It's the darkness of unbelief that deceives us into thinking that the bitter consequences of sin will not apply here believing instead that giving in to temptation, surely that's the only way to escape this. It's unbelief that urges us to doubt the ordinary means of grace as the means by which God has given to us to strengthen us and nourish us for the work ahead. It is unbelief that refuses to admit that the simplicity of prayer, reading of scripture, The gathering with God's people is the means by which God has provided to strengthen his people. And this unbelief is sin. It must be confessed and repented of. The warnings are clear for us. The offense of unmet expectations. The refusal of unwilling listeners. But there's thirdly this trap of ungodly affections. And we see this explicitly in Herod. According to Mark in verses 14 through 29, this growing reputation of Jesus was an unsettling reminder to this governor. He was not really a king. He was a governor of this region, Herod Antipas. It was an unsettling reminder that he actually sought to suppress the message of John's teaching by severing his head. The ministry of Jesus pricked his conscience because he knew of what he did to John. And so Mark gives us a bit of a flashback, a backstory as to why Herod would think that. We were introduced to John in chapter one and we're told ultimately here of his martyred fate in chapter six. The backstory really is just a tragic account of a man who regularly heard the word of truth, yet was ultimately dominated by his ungodly affections and did nothing. We're told a bit of the confrontation in verses 17 through 19. Here's the issue. Herod had taken a wife whom he had no right to. Herodias was the wife of his brother, Philip, and he took her to be his wife. Technically, she was also his niece. So in divorcing his wife and unlawfully marrying his brother's wife, John throws the penalty flag and comes at Herod, and he preaches the righteous requirement of God's law, calling out Herod in his sin. This is unrighteous. A man should not have his brother's wife. So Herod's in a bit of a pickle here. Because his conscience appears to be actually pricked. And we're told that he does fear John. He knows that he was a righteous man. He knows he was a holy man. And in verse 20, he heard him gladly. Seeming intrigued by what he heard. He's perplexed. He sits on the edge of his seat. Much like Felix in the book of Acts. He heard him gladly. But Herod has another problem here the fury and the grudge of his wife. She was much less responsive to the message of this John the baptizer. The whole matter of righteousness and preaching, she says, I just want him dead. So Herod's trying to walk this tightrope here of protecting John but heeding his wife. The confrontation moves forward into curiosity where we saw in verse 20 that Herod did fear John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe, and when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet still heard him gladly. The relationship between John and Herod certainly is an interesting one, to say the least. Herod feared John. When he heard him preach, he knew, that is right. What he's saying about me, that that is true. He feared him as a just and holy man. He knew that he spoke truth. He knew this is someone you shouldn't mess with. So let's do my best. Let's just, we're not going to kill him, Herodias, but we'll put him in the dungeon. We'll put him in prison. And when he listened to John preached, he was most certainly intrigued, perplexed, yet keeping him in prison. If ever there was a picture of a man just wrestling with his conscience, surely it is Herod. But ultimately, the wrestling match, it comes to this grievous and sinful end when he is ultimately compromised. Verses 21 through 29. He himself, Herod, proves the teaching of Christ to be true. You can't serve two masters. In the end, you will love one and you'll hate the other. John tried to bow here to his curiosity to hear this preacher, John, and simultaneously fear his wife. Herod, then, serves as a grievous warning of a life dominated by sensuality and ultimately trapped by his ungodly affections. He was a man driven by pleasure. Look at verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod. And his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. That is the definition of a man driven by pleasure, ungodly affections. And this pleasure, ultimately, verse 26, turns to great sorrow. Because after he makes that vow, someone is quick to say, Let's have John's head. And the king was exceedingly sorry, verse 26. But because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. This emphasis here upon ungodly affections and sensuality are given to us, church, to teach us an important truth about human sinfulness. Sin, by its very nature, preoccupies us with the world, what we can see and feel and touch in front of us and deadens us, blinds us to the invisible heaven rea- heavenly realities of divine things. We become transfixed by what we can see and experience now and we become blindly ignorant to the unseen spiritual realities. That is what unbelief does. Particularly in Herod's Example of sensuality, ungodly affections. And our Lord, he has warned us about living for the treasures upon the earth and calls people to pursue treasures in heaven because no man can serve two masters. And so when we are driven by sensuality, the message of God's kingdom, it is, it is choked out, it's made unfruitful within the heart and the various cares of the world or in Christ's words, the deceitfulness of riches they end up shaping our affections. Such a person is really a reflection of Bunyan's character in the Pilgrim's Progress, the man with the muckrake. Some of you have read this recently. The man with the muckrake, the entirety of his attention was consumed with raking up sticks and dirt and could not see the glories of the celestial city nor the heavenly crown that was offered to him because he was transfixed, by earthly things, the backstory here, given to us by Mark, is a tragic account of a man who regularly heard the word of truth, yet was dominated by his flesh and did nothing. Well, he did something. He actually chose to suppress the truth. In his life stands as a tragic story of one who was just given over to the pull of sin and sensuality, which is ultimately leading to his unbelief. If you're feeling the reality of the effects of sin and seeing within Scripture that the effects of sin upon the human heart are grievous, disheartening, and disruptive, you would be 100% correct. We are meant to feel this. But in hearing this and in seeing this, we must never make the mistake of trying to look away and just ignore sin. When you're kind of brought up close to it and you see, oh, that is, that is disgusting, look away. Scripture would say the opposite. Look right at it. Don't look away from this. The scriptures would compel us to look directly at our sin and consider the truth of what sin does to our minds, to our will to our affection, because this, the scripture says, is the plague of every human heart, the plague that has corrupted every single one of us. And if we are to understand true belief and true repentance, we must look long and hard at what sin does to the human condition, to you, to me. Because if we do not, what we'll come away with are inadequate and superficial conclusions to what our real problem is. If we ignore the reality of sin, we come up with some other answer that is empty, temporal, and hollow. What is my real problem? Which leads to another question. What is my real hope? What is the gospel? Who is Christ? You see, friends, If we do not have the right answer to what is sin and what does sin do, the rest of those questions will be answered insufficiently. They will not make sense. And they will not wow you. They will not compel you. They will not bring you to your knees and say, My Lord, my God. What I'm saying is that we must be clear on our doctrine of sin if we're going to be clear on our doctrine of grace. What happens to us at conversion? How are we converted? What is the Spirit's work in regeneration, meaning when you are caused to be born again and given new affections, new hearts, new eyes? Each of these questions can only be sufficiently answered when we consider the sinfulness of sin and the reality of our unwillingness and inability to believe. It is only when we rightly consider those biblical realities that we stand in awe of grace. Friends, the Bible does not leave us in the dark without hope, distraught by the effects of sin. Hopefully it brings us there to see the reality of sin. But we must venture into the darkness of that dungeon to see what sin actually is. For when we seek to illuminate that darkness by the light of scripture, we see That the hope of Christ shines most brilliant and actually there, in that darkness, gives us great hope. Because ultimately, the call of the gospel and the hope for all unbelief, it's wrapped up in one word. Grace. And when we speak of grace, we are speaking of the reality of what God does for sinners in full view of their corruption of sin and their unbelieving nature. When we speak of grace, we are acknowledging that we are contrary. We're acknowledging actually something that's very contrary to culture's assumption. That is, God does not owe us something. He doesn't even owe us a chance at salvation. When we say that God is not obligated to be gracious, we're talking then about sovereign grace. We're talking about God's willful decision to show unobligated favor to undeserving recipients. And where does this truth shine so brightly in Scripture? Perhaps we could go to a number of places, because it's all throughout, (laughs) because it is the reality of the gospel, It is this great thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. It shines brighter and more explicit in certain portions. But friends, it is the tie that binds all of the great goodness of God's mercy together. We could think most specifically about Ephesians 1. Just there in that first chapter that tells us of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity's effectual working to save a people out of unbelief, to belief. And what do we find in Ephesians 1? Well, first we see that this grace given and shown in the Father's determined purposes to save a people for himself before the foundations of the world for no other reason than his good pleasure. Listen to Ephesians 1.3. to the praise of his glorious grace, which with he has made us blessed in the beloved. Grace is also seen, as Paul goes on, in the son's work of redemption. Not only the father's electing love, but the son's gracious redemption, that he purchases these people at the cost of his own blood upon the cross, that he accomplishes the work of liberating us from our sin and restoring us to God by laying down his life. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Father, Son, and yet Spirit is working working actively in this same sovereign grace. Because in verse 13, we see that it is the Spirit that it applies everything the Father willed and that the Son accomplishes to these Sinful people who are made righteous. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is a, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Yes, the sinfulness of sin And the plague of unbelief. It is a terrible bondage. And it is the one thing. The one thing that will keep you from heaven. It is the one thing that will keep you from all that God accomplishes. But Christ is greater still. Christ is greater than unbelief. Considering all of this, would you please, upon hearing this, take to heart of these damning examples of unbelief and folly and consider the condition of your own heart. For Nazareth and those familiar with Jesus, they looked at him and they scoffed at him because he did not meet their expectations. He was not the Messiah that they expected. Others would take issue with the word as it would call them to repent and believe, and it would be met with an unwillingness to listen. This was not the message they wanted to hear. Herod, ruled by his ungodly affections, ultimately the righteousness John preached of and that God requires was not the master that he wanted to serve. Look long, look hard at the corruption of sin in your own life, And then look to the announcement of scripture, the announcement of the gospel, speaking of the grace of God given to sinners. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in his grace. Believe that his word is the true word, despite what you think and what you feel and what you've experienced. All of that is laid down at the reality of this is his word and he is the son of God. And so how wonderful it is to know that by God's sovereign grace, we can sing with Wesley about a dungeon and about a light and about chains. And what did Wesley sing? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Why did he end there? Because he knew that he was bound in prison and it wasn't until the light of God's glorious gospel came in and unlocked everything. That is what happens to a sinner plagued by unbelief. God, in his gracious might, overwhelms us with the goodness of his light. And then we stand with Wesley at the top of our lungs and say, my chains, they've fallen off. I went forth, I followed, because of God's sovereign grace. There is great warning in the scriptures But there is great urgency and hope at the same time. Father, would you please, by the goodness of your sovereign grace, by the faithfulness of your promise, and according to the mercy that's extended in Christ, would you save for yourself a people unto yourself? Lord, even this morning we ask for those pricked in their conscience. Those wrestling with their own examples of unbelief, Father, would you cause your grace to overwhelm, to rule and subdue us, to bring us to yourself and to conquer us, that we might be those who can, with Wesley and with our brothers and sisters, stand and rejoice that our chains and shackles have fallen off, that all that which binds us in our unbelief, Lord, you've unlocked, you've brought us to yourself, you've welcomed us as sons that you're restoring us to the image of your son and that you shall one day return and we shall know these resurrected bodies and the goodness of what you've created us for. Father, we long and we ask that you would continue to work that within us. And those very examples, even in this week where we are tempted to turn away from what we know is true of you and to purely make decisions based on what we can see or make best sense of, Lord, do not us allow, allow us to to endure that kind of folly but continue to show us the goodness of your ways and the absolute perfection of your works. Lord, make us a people who are astonished and astounded purely because of your grace and your power and the authority that's given to you. We ask that you would accomplish this because Lord, apart from it we are hopeless. But because you are so gracious and kind and that you've promised that you would do so, we ask in great faith and confidence, asking, Lord, May it be so for us. In Christ's name, amen.